Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 10th of March 2020 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Spring has certainly sprung here in Hong Kong this week, and we're all getting seasonal spring rains and that damp, damp weather to remind us. This week, though, as we listen to the news and wear our surgical masks when in public areas, we'll be listening to two stories from our storytellers. Both of our stories take place in America today. Katrina's is from September 2019 show, which had some recording problems, so we invited her into the studio to re-record. Trey is the founder of Shenzhen Stories, and he came and told his story on our stage in 2018. Before we get to today's stories, though, a humid and sticky hug goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We love that you're taking so much time out of your days to listen to our stories. Thanks for listening. Go out to our worldwide listeners as well, especially those in Auckland and New Zealand, Edgeward in the UK, and Perth in Australia. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. We had a few hiccups along the way for our next live show, but now we're well prepared and ready to go on April 23rd at 8 p.m. at the Riff, which is on the eighth floor of the California Tower in Lang Kwai Fung. The show will have the theme Fifty Shades of Red, and we're really looking forward to getting back into the swing of things. Ticketing details will be up soon. Check the website hongkongstories.com for details. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with a story from our September 2019 show, here is Katrina. Hello, I'm Katrina, 31. I'm from Manila, and I came here to Hong Kong to pursue a career in art. And with a lot of hard work and risk-taking, I've been working as a theme park designer for a company we can just call uh, Wisneyland. For the most part of the past five years, I did my best to always be a good person with a sunny disposition. Not to say life was always rosy, but fuck yeah, it really was. It was pretty intense. I had a caring partner, the best job, and on the tail end of 2017, I was asked to go to California for half a year of job training. In my mind, that was going to be the biggest turning point of my life. I was just so excited to make the best of it. March 10, 2018 rolled in, and it started ordinary in every way. I wore a linen dress with brand new brown leather flats. A friend had visited my service department in Glendale. We were beautiful. And then we had lunch, steak and mac and cheese, in the mall ten minutes away from my flat. We went shopping right after our meal. We were walking around, and then... A man clutching his child ran out in front of us. He screams, There's a shooter! Run! I remember it being so quiet. You could only hear the footsteps of people running. And then the sounds of shop fronts dropping their shutters. Then later, sirens, 
so many sirens. When I did have time to think, I thought, if I ran any slower, will I die? And I, I need to tell my partner that I love him. I need to tell my family I love them. And you know, fuck America. Why is everything so fucking big? You run and you run and you, you don't even know if you're running the right way. And the mall, this mall is fucking massive. And these cops show up with shotguns and cop cars swarmed everywhere. And it's still, and still there were still so many sirens but what sucks most about march 10 2018 is that no one has ever heard of it 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 was barely on the news because what happened was that there was a robbery gone wrong and the mall cops shot at the bad guys and it caused this panic stampede but shooting or not my life was just never the same again and my service department was just 10 minutes away from this place. I felt so scared, alone, and unsafe. And my partner, my family, could not be with me to comfort me. Thank God for free counseling because my mind was rendered so raw and ragged from nightmares of being shot. My nerves running cold every time I could hear... Sirens, these violent, ripping sounds that tore me away from the present and would take me back to running that day. And I didn't even know if I could tell people about this. My experience didn't make any rational sense. My friend who ran with me was fine. My partner reiterated through the phone. There was... Absolutely no way I could have died that day. I know that. I know. Why aren't the facts enough? He was just trying to comfort me with the facts, but why wasn't that enough? I just want to feel safe. I just want to go home. Eventually, training was over in California, and I got back to Hong Kong, but I would still hear the sirens. And my partner was begging me to get back to bed when I would wake up screaming, telling him to run. But he apparently doesn't hear anything. It was all in my head. You, you know what they say in Asia about tragedy? That tragedy comes in threes. Within that same year, my grandmother passed away very suddenly. And on the end of January this year, my partner broke up with me. And at that point, I was just really done. What the fuck? How <laughs> does one even process this shit? A whole year of grief, one after another. I was in such deep, exhausting pain. So, a week after he broke up with me, I decided to go back to Manila. I had one mission in mind. To throw a ridiculously huge party 
of love in my hometown. My body is a temple? No, my body was going to be a pizza and whiskey receptacle. And every person I had ever missed was invited. Friend groups from college, people I haven't seen in years. And surprise, they have kids now. Everyone who I had ever considered to be family came to what I would call as my good grief party, where I told them my harrowing story, which I had never publicly openly revealed until then. Quietly through the night, these friends came to me with their own experiences, struggles that they in turn have never really talked about either, battling mental health, problems with their family, of an engagement ending. Stories we couldn't fathom to even bring up to each other because we have been so out of touch for so long. And for one night, we had all the excuses to drink and dance our troubles away. But before the night ended, I asked my friends a parting favor. I brought a brand new diary to this party, I asked them. Write or draw something lovely to wish me luck into the future. I am so blessed that my friends are artists. My collection of new drawings included lucky amulets, rabbits, and four-leaf clovers and random blank pages. My favorite drawing from that night, though, was an incredibly articulate drawing of a muscled naked man. His head was left blank with a note that read, Insert new boyfriend here. And God, I love these people so much. I eventually returned to Hong Kong, to a new flat. This place is gorgeous, romantic, with tall, spanning windows that envelop my flat from one corner to the other. So much sunlight filling in this 180 square feet of what is mine. So much light to draw and write new things to. And while sirens still come by here, I know that they do not come for me. Ever since that trip to Manila, I could feel that my pace started to slow, and my heart raced less. And I don't know exactly when it happened. It could be when I finished my diary six months later. It could have been in a know-nothing day when I came back after work one time. It happened ever so suddenly. One day, I didn't feel like I was running anymore. I finally made it home. We all get by with a little help from our friends. You can be like Katrina and come and make some new friends at a free storytelling workshop where you can also learn how to tell your stories better. Find out how at hongkongstories.com. And since we're talking of friends and by extension community, here is another community group that deserves a highlight. For a Cleaner Ocean is a non-profit organization based in Hong Kong. It allies kite surfing and water sport challenges that mobilize communities to save our ocean. The organization was born out of a passion from a local kite surfer named Hillian Su, who decided to save the ocean in style. She hatched a plan to kite surf across the heavily polluted Pearl River Delta from Hong Kong to Macau 
and completed the challenge on the 1st of March, 2019. She raised almost $100,000 locally, most of which was donated to local charities like Ocean Recovery Alliance. Hillian invites the world's water sports communities to join them in creating more local and global fundraising challenges, locally and around the globe, to save the ocean with practical solutions. If you're in a water sports community, like kite surfing, windsurfing, stand-up paddleboard, kayaking, or swimming, and you want to use your superpowers to help improve your playground, get in touch with them. They have you covered. You can find For a Cleaner Ocean via their website, foracleanerocean.com, and follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to their YouTube channel. Join Hillian and get active to make our oceans cleaner. And now, with a story from 2018, here is Trey. My father is a lot of things. He's an avid comic book nerd, still. He is a bad to decent golfer, a self-proclaimed comic, deacon at our church, as well as a Sunday school teacher, and until recently, a captain in the police force of Sumter, South Carolina, where I grew up. To say that we had a few rules to follow in that house would be fair. One time I was cutting my grass, and I put a bandana on to keep the sweat out of my eyes, and my father ran out of the house and demanded I take it off to avoid gang affiliation. He had his reasons and his own unique way of viewing the world. And to his credit, I avoided gang affiliation to this day. (laughs) But he had these rules that I hated. And I didn't hate them because I thought I was a bad kid who wanted to break them. I hated them because I thought I was a good kid who didn't need them. Like, I was doing okay. I was blossoming as a contributor to society. I had a part-time job I was holding at a fast food chicken place. I was at church almost as much as he was. None of my other friends were gang affiliated either. I was a good kid, which is why it came as a shock to a few people, myself included, when I became the prime suspect in an arson investigation concerning a bathroom fire in my high school that spread and closed the school and caused a fair amount of damage. One person who was not surprised was Detective Brian Christmas. I know. That's a great detective name. (laughs) But me and Brian Christmas got very close to each other in the course of that week because I would go to school and instead of going to class, be called down to the office and go into a room I didn't know our school had, actually, and sit down with Brian Christmas, Detective Brian Christmas, and the principal and be grilled about the past couple of days of my life. I don't know if you've ever been the subject of a police investigation, uh, or if you were in the 10th grade when that happened to you, but the social ramifications alone are devastating. I would get grilled by Brian Christmas day in and day out. And it's an intense scenario, but one question stands out to me above everything else. And that question was, did you do it? And I know, 
I know that you're thinking, Trey, that sounds like a very standard question for a police investigation, and you would be right. First question, top of the list, did you do it? Because we can get this out of the way very quickly. But the reason it stands out to me is that it came from my dad. And it came from my dad over and over and over and over again, no matter how many times I said, I didn't do this. I didn't set my school on fire. And it shattered me because the one guy I thought would and should have my back didn't. And he had power and he had sway in the police department and he didn't use it. He didn't tell Detective Brian Christmas to give me a break. And so a ritual sort of occurred that week where I'd get home from school. I'd be asked if I did it. I would say no. Then I'd be asked again. Then I'd scream no. And then we'd scream at each other and then there'd be some tears and then a door would slam. And that became our, our little ritual <laughs> that week. Um, but on the fourth day, the fourth day was different. On the fourth day, my dad put me in his car, and we drove to the police station, and he punched in the code to the sliding doors to the building, and we walked in. We walked down the hall, past his office, past his coworkers. And towards a small room in the back of the station where I would get hooked up to a polygraph machine to take a lie detector test. And I thought, this is great, because now I can show him. I can vindicate myself. Science will help me. And this will all be behind us. I can go back to being trusted by my dad. Because, frankly, I was tired of having to scream at him, no, I didn't do it. I was tired of not being heard by him, because all I wanted to do was be heard over Brian Christmas, over the details of the past couple of days that my friends, friends <laughs> said they knew about me. I wanted to be heard, and I wanted my voice to matter more to my dad than it seemed like it did. So instead of fighting, my dad looked at me and said, is your last chance. You can tell me now, and I can help you. You tell me right now, I can help you out of this. If you take this test, ain't nothing I can do. Now, he doesn't talk like that. I just do that voice when I imitate him. <laughs> I think he's easier to villainize that way. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why I do it. But instead of coming back at him with a, no, I didn't, and then we'd scream, and then there'd be tears, and then a door would slam, I remained quiet. And I sat down in the chair, and Detective Brian Christmas was there, and he had a little book, and he began reading from his book the names of everyone he'd sent to jail based on the results from that very polygraph machine. And I let him read it because I had watched Law & Order, and I know that lie detector tests are inadmissible in a court of law. Like, you can't use them. <laughs> But while he's reading those names, we'll leave him to that for a second, and I'd like to make an addendum to a previous comment that I made. You see, I was a good kid, but I was a good kid who had a year previously to the fire incident stolen his dad's car when he was 13, 14 and gone on a joyride, smashed a few mailboxes, bent a rearview mirror and made a bunch of pedestrians scream and destroyed a fence all while I was supposed to be watching my little sister. Hi, Anna. She's right there. <laughs> and it felt awesome. 
I felt like I wanted to go and have a scotch with Batman and Steve McQueen. That's what I thought I wanted to do because I'd never had scotch because I was a good kid. (laughs) But that's not what happened because when your father is the captain of police in Sumter, South Carolina and very active in the church in a small community, the entire city becomes his confidential informant. And I was grounded before I got home. This is before cell phones, so the feat alone is amazing. <laughs> so back to Brian Christmas. As he's reading the names, and I'm wondering, maybe my dad's thinking about the car right now. Maybe that's why he doesn't believe me. Oh, maybe my actions matter. The test begins. Is your name Trey Hobbs? Yes. Do you attend Sumter High School? Yes. Were you on the campus of Sumter High School on the day in question? Yes. Were you skipping class on the day in question? Yes. Do you, were you wearing a red hoodie on the day in question? I own a red hoodie? Yes or no answers, please. Yes, I was wearing a red hoodie. Is this you in the security footage walking down the hall minutes before the fire was reported to have started? It's grainy. The video is very grainy, but yes, that's me. Did you set the school on fire? And I answered him truthfully. No, I didn't. And I went home that day and had the same fight with my dad because when the results came back from that polygraph test, they were inconclusive. So I got asked, did you do it? I said, no. I got asked, did you do it? I screamed, no. We screamed, then we cried, and then a door slammed. And then the next day, I sort of expected to go to school and get a note from the principal's office that said, could you send Trey down, please? Um, He's going to be arrested. But that didn't happen. Nothing happened. I never heard from Detective Brian Christmas ever again. I never went home and got asked, did I do it? Said no, screamed, cried, and slammed a door. In that context, anyways. (laughs) Ever again. And through all of this, I am struck with a lesson that my dad, I don't think, meant to teach me. Because when you go on a joyride in a car that's not yours, and you're a kid... You want to roll those windows down. You want to blare that music. But when you do that, everyone else has to roll their windows up. And when you're screaming, you're not listening. And when your music is blaring, you're not listening. It's why we tell stories, because we want to be heard, and it's because we want to be listened to. And I don't know who ever got picked up for this arson, and I don't know where he is now, but I'm sure he was just a good kid who wanted to be heard. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.